So tonight is the full moon in March, and it's an auspicious full moon for many different reasons. My mother is currently having a Seder dinner in Santa Rosa, California, and so Seder is the is the Passover um, celebration, which celebrates the exodus of the Jewish people from slavery. And growing up in a in a Jewish household, my grandmother originally was a Orthodox Jew, um, but by the time I can remember, she kept a she didn't keep a kosher house. She kept a reform house. But we had satyrs, you know, from the time I was knee high to a grasshopper. I never understood them, and I never understood why we had to wait until 10 o'clock at night before we could eat any dinner because I was so hungry. But when I got older, and then I started learning more and spent some time studying the practices and the r- rituals and the religion. I had a sense of what the whole ceremony of Passover was. And in fact, after I started meditating, I wrote my own Haggadah, um, which was really the, uh, the, the journey of um, using the Passover Seder as a way of, of um, looking at the Four Noble Truths, looking at the journey of the, the, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the, the release of suffering and the path to the end of suffering, and weaving these different things together. Because the exodus of the Jewish people and the, and the Passover ceremony it has so much in it that's similar in terms of understanding the nature of suffering and the cause and all the rest of it. But for me, that was a, that was an easy that was an easy blend to do. So for for people Jewish people, there's the Passover ceremony, and then for um, Christians, next weekend is Easter Sunday. There's Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which is you know the whole concept of the crucifixion and resurrection and as um, you know depending on your belief or your faith or what you were raised with there might be a whole bunch of different views and opinions and feelings about what that means but as a as an archetypical journey you know the whole journey of crucifixion and resurrection is 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 something that all of us go through you know in a path of awakening not that you know I've been physically nailed to a cross but the whole experience of of um, of kind of having to die to parts of oneself that one doesn't want to, and the experience of of a transformational process that that shifts our body chemistry and nervous system and allows something to emerge completely anew that you would never have imagined before is part of the mystical path and it's universal. So when we look at crucifixion and resurrection, not in literal symbolic terms, not in literal terms, but in metaphoric and mystical languaging, it's absolutely real. You know, it's absolutely something that happens. You know, and I could talk a lot about 
my understanding of what that is, what that looks like. And then today I learned that um, Mahapajapati Gotami, which was the, uh, the stepmother of the Buddha, so she was the foster mother and the stepmother of the Buddha. So the story was, is, is that, and the story is, and I don't quite understand why, but the story is, is, is that the, the mother of the Buddha, the mother of all of the Buddhas, cannot, um, doesn't live more than just a week after the baby is born. And so this little beautiful baby was born, and three days after he was born, the mother died. And her sister, Mahapachapati, was, uh, became the foster mother. So the king had a couple of wives that was the foster mother. And she nursed him like, you know, he was her own son. And so then she became um, interested in renouncing the world. And she was the first person to bring it to the Buddha's attention that women wanted to go forth. And so um, there was this whole story which I used to get so furious about, oh my goodness, about, you know, her saying, you know, she wanted to go forth and the Buddha saying, you know, don't ask me that question or don't ask or don't, don't ask that question. And so, you know, she asked three times and the Buddha repeated, don't don't ask me this question if I can go forth. And then he left it like that. And so, you know, and then the story is, this is that, you know, she didn't go home and cry. Or she might have gone home and cried, but she went home and cried and then she shaved off her head and hair and she got 500 other women who were part of the family, the royal family, to also shave off their hair and put on the robes of monastics and walk 500 miles in the dust and the dirt in the heat of the Ganges Valley to the Buddha to say, here we are, you know. And as it turned out, Ananda was the one who interceded on her, on the Buddha and was asking, um, what, you know, what she was doing and where she was intending to go. And, and her distress was is that when she first asked, the Buddha didn't allow her to enter into the order. And so he interceded on the, her behalf and on the 500 women's behalf. And then, and then on the basis of what he had said, he allowed the women to go forth. So Mahapajapati Gotami was the first bhikkhuni that was allowed to ordain in the time of the Buddha. Now, there's all kinds of historical and you know, scholastic debate about whether this actually happened and whether it was before or after and who put it and what the intention was and all the rest of that. But what we know to be the fact is, is that Mahapajapati was the first nun who ordained. And this full moon of March um, celebrates the day of her becoming a Sotapanna, of her first stage of awakening on the path to becoming an Arahant. So um, we've got um, Jewish celebration around this time. We've got Christian celebration around this time. And in the Buddhist tradition, we have the first bhikkhuni uh, attained the first stage of enlightenment at this time. Very, very auspicious full moon. And so, um, you know, we have, we have myth, we have, we have story, we have archetype.
And it's really for us to use this in a way that allows our hearts to open and our and our minds to understand and embrace what is the path rather than to feel like we're carrying some kind of a chain and shackle and dragging forward something that doesn't fit us any longer. And, you know, one of the things that I really um, appreciated about, uh, I just read a, a, a book of Ken Wilber's, a recent one, and this book is one book that is actually intelligible. <laughs> IQ of 7,000 to read it. <laughs> um, he talks about like the, the different ways that people understand a religious symbol like Christ in terms of from because everybody understands things from where they're at. And so if there's like seven different stages of where people are at spiritually, then there'll be seven different interpretations of Christ. You know? And so this book really maps it all out. You know, that, and yet they're all referring to Christ, and yet each one has a very different understanding of what Christ actually is, and that's natural in the way that you know when we're all um, growing, we're at different levels of development, and we would never look at an eight-year-old and say that an eight-year-old is somehow a broken and imperfect twelve-year-old. You know, we would just we would never do that. You know. But when we look at each other and we sometimes get snobby or snotty because people are at different stages of development, we don't recognize that they're at the perfect stage of development that they need to be from where they're at Um, because they're not at my level of development, which is obviously superior. So, you know, one of the things that we each need to learn, and, you know, I am no exception in this, is the is a kind of bigger view that has more than just my own sense of how things are in the world as the reference point, and learning to take other people's perceptions and perspectives and, um, you know, places where they're at. And, you know, certainly community is really useful for that, because I think it's common. We grow up thinking everybody's like me. You know, and until you actually live in community, you don't realize how incredibly different everybody is in terms of the way they think and perceive and the views and the values that people have and all the rest of that. So we have these religions, and these religions have these tenets in them, and the tenets have a lot of goodness in them. And so we were just talking about refuges and precepts and practice. And these are all really good. You know, it creates a context, it creates a container, it helps tether us to something that's outside of our own individual sphere of understanding and brings us into something that is wide open. Yeah, it's beautiful. And yet, one of the things that um, is not spoken about in the scriptures is what's needed just to grow up as a human being. Okay? So, basic growing up is kind of missed as a something that's talked about. So my experience of living in community is, is is that growing up happens living in community, but it's not spoken about in the suttas. It was not the discussions that the Buddha talked about. So, you know, one of the things I've been reflecting on is, is, is that it's natural for all of us to have things that we like to do and things that we don't like to do. And 
and, and it's true. It's true no matter how, how old we are. There are things we like to do and things we don't like to do. And when we're probably very little, or as we're growing up, depending on our parents and the kind of way that they raised us, it was probably likely that we weren't forced to do a lot of things that we didn't want to do, you know. But whether you were forced to do things you didn't want to do or not, you know, there was like, usually with some families, there were limits. So whether you hated having a bath or not, it was like, that's just too bad. It's time for a bath. You have to have a bath, you know. And whether you cry and have a tantrum or whatever, it's time for a bath. Yeah. So in a healthy family situation, there'll be a kind of age-appropriate monitor of giving children um, not too many things that they don't want to do, but they still have to take a bath and they have to eat. They've got to brush their teeth. They've got to put on clean clothes. You know, the kinds of things that are necessary for basic health and safety. Right. Where, as human beings growing up, there's all kinds of developmental stages that we need to go through. And some of them we go through easily, and some of them we resist with every ounce of fur and fang we can muster. And so what's useful in community is to create a loving context that helps us um, go through the stuff that we have resistance to. And part of the stuff that we have resistance to is the stuff that we don't want to do. You know, we just don't like it. We don't want to go there. You know, so we stick in our heels. You know, we dig in and we don't want to go there. And so part of our learning and growing up is to develop the capacity to be able to self-regulate about the things that are actually not helpful for us and that we need to avoid and the things that we are resistant to which are actually important for us to learn to embrace. And there's a lot of learning in, in doing that in a wise and compassionate way. So, you know, I remember in the early days in the monastery, we were incredibly idealistic about everything. And so the basic premise was, is do what you don't like to do. Okay? So we would have the carpenters in the kitchen, and we'd have the cooks in the workshop, and it was like... <laughs> the food tastes terrible and the buildings fell down. <laughs> so you can take a principle uh, to an extreme and you can end up with a, an unsustainable situation, you know. And for some of us, we can be going through things where we're just maxed out. You know, we've got so much on our plate, we can't handle any more um, challenge, you know. I, I remember I remember a situation. There were a couple of, like, serious times when the nuns' community was just on the verge of, like, falling apart. And it had been... Oh, there was a, there was a context with the power of this. I'm not going to go into that. But there was a situation where, within a very short period of time, half of the nuns had disrobed. I was a very young nun, and I was totally rattled. I mean, I was totally rattled. Half of the nuns disrobed in a really short period of time. And one morning, something happened, and I think the person making breakfast had a tantrum and walked out. Which I mean, in a monastery, these kinds of things happen. <laughs> so there was no breakfast, and I remember the senior monk saying, "So there's no breakfast," and it was like, "I can't cope." You know, I cannot cope with one more thing that's uncertain that I don't know about. It's like I cannot 
cope, you know. I can't go there. So we each need to understand when our systems are destabilized. That is not the time to be pushing into new territory that needs to be explored. Okay? We need to back off. We need to regroup. We need to find some ground. We need to feel our sense of well-being and confidence and rootedness and where we belong in all of this. And it's from that that we actually move into these edges and explore these places, you know. So a mature person has the ability to do whatever needs to be done. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how important they are. It doesn't matter how skilled they are. They just do whatever needs to be done. And one of the stories about that, which I thought was just really quite beautiful, was, you know, when Amravati um, was a... Was a was purchased, it was a, a summer camp for kids. It was actually built in the 1930s as a place to evacuate the kids from London from the bombing. Okay? So, and, and all of the buildings were, were designed without English winter in mind. So they all were, they, didn't, they weren't winterized. And the heating system was insane. It had pipes that were this big underground that had no heating in them. It cost $60,000 to run the heating in the wintertime. And so it was like, you know, the first thing that happened was we dismantled the, the heating system, you know. And then it was like 15 years of, you know, hard work to get the buildings insulated and new heating systems. And so it was always a plan when they bought this property to build a temple because within monasteries having a proper temple is not like a, as a feature of a place where people can meditate, you know, a beautiful place. So Ajahn Sumedho had this idea wanting to had to build a, a beautiful temple. So it was a big thing, you know. It took a lot of money, a lot of time. There was a lot of negotiation. It was a big thing. Finally built the temple and we're going to have a party, which is what you do when you have a temple. You have a party. Buddhist style, you know. You invite a gazillion monks and nuns from all over the planet and you do chanting and you have a meal offering. You do chanting and, and you have some talks and, you know, what do you do? This is the party. Okay. So we had like 3,000 people who were going to come, which for us was like really big. Okay. So like, you know, Shaktivar, can you imagine 500 people coming to Shaktivar? That would be like the same. Okay. 3,000 people coming to Amravati. We'd never had that. We'd never had a ceremony that big before. And none of us were used to doing anything like that. So there was lots of things that we needed to prepare for. And a lot of it was like outside of our range of what we could expect. So it was really kind of surrendering into something that we didn't know. And Ajahn Pasano and I think a number of the monks from Abayagiri, so they flew from California. Was he in California then? Wherever he came from. Yeah, he was in California then. Got off the plane, rolled up his sleeves, and just got stuck into work. Okay, so here's the monk who's been a monk for... Close to 30 years. Okay, very senior monk. I mean, absolutely, it would be totally acceptable if he disappeared and became a princess until the whole thing was ready to go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's suitable behavior for a monk of that stature is to do whatever he wanted to do. But his way of showing up was to take all of his monks and have them all plug in to helping out. You know, 
carting and sifting and sorting and organizing and all the rest of that, okay? Then we had a platform, and there were too many monks to sit on the platform. So Ajahn Pasano, who's like a rock star in Thailand, you know, when he goes and teaches and travels, there's like thousands of people who come and see him. He's a really, really highly respected monk, you know. The place he had to sit was in the corner behind the something. He couldn't see anything, you know, like nothing. He couldn't see anything. But it's like, that's where there was to sit. That's where he sit. There was not a word, like zero word about it being a problem. It's like, you know, that's what's needed. That's what he does. To me, that's an example of somebody who's grown up. You know, they do what's needed and they assume the position that's the most useful. That's being very grown up. So we have meditation practices that support us waking up. We have to deliberately attend to our growing up. And as a part of our growing up, what we also need to do is to clean up. So many of us have residues of unconscious belief systems and patterns and imprints that we internalized from our family of, of origin and the kinds of stuff that we live through. And this stuff just does not disappear by some kind of magic wand that goes voop voop, you know? It actually requires direct application on specific skill to figure out what those things are and to see that we transmute stuff which was difficult and painful or traumatic into clarity, into positive potential, into understanding, into compassion. And so one of the things that I have been really um, very interested in is to create a culture that supports waking up, growing up, and cleaning up, not preferencing one over the other. And um, that has been a passion of mine. And, and I see I'm not finished with it, but I see that as I attend to these three areas, there's a different kind of level of peace and ease that I experience in myself than when I was just focused on one. So even though I had insight at a very young age, so the waking up thing was something that I understood. I had a lot of growing up and a lot of cleaning up to do, and because I hadn't attended to those things, even though the insight was there, there was still an awful lot of suffering I was sitting in and sitting with and dealing with. And, you know, you can see it in my body. I, I, Ivan and I just watched a video clip of a documentary that was made... It hasn't been released yet. Hopefully when we get it released, we can have a film night of it. It's of the nun situation, and I'm in it. And so are the nuns in Amravati. And I look at myself in that video. I look like a Sherman tank, you know. (laughs) You know, I just, I'm just, you know, my body is stiff, and I feel like I'm filled up, and I'm just about to pop. I mean, even when I'm walking, I'm not even talking about anything I look like that. And reflecting on it afterwards, I can see that there was an awful lot of stuff that I was sitting with that I hadn't digested and processed. Now, part of it was actually about the material that the documentary is talking about. (laughs) And I hadn't actually, I wasn't actually tracking the impact that all of that was having on me, you know.
was quite huge. But, you know, here, where I'm not in that situation, and I feel the difference of the way that I am and the way that I move and all the rest of that is quite significant. Yeah. So we have an auspicious evening, and I'm very pleased um, we can shift gears now and, you know, enjoy the full moon and the glory of the Garden of the Gods. But this principle of waking up and what it means in the different elements of our life for me is really important not to lose sight of because to me I haven't seen it that it works that if we focus on one of these areas and drill into it that that then flows out into the other areas I haven't seen it you know, there needs to be attending to these other areas. And some things like living in community help with the growing up piece because you're constantly in positions in community where you're having to do stuff for the better for the good greater good rather than for your own need. That helps the growing up part. But it doesn't help the cleaning up part unless you've got a really clear commitment as a part of the community to do that work of looking at what is the stuff that we have pushed away because it was too painful to be with and how is that stuff actually motivating and affecting us now. So, let's stop and we can rock up, as they say in England. And go for a walk in the glorious garden, and then we can come back, we can talk about whatever is alive for us, whether there's bits and pieces about this talk or other things that come up, and we can see how it all fits together. Okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.